Well, welcome back. We're in a continuing study of John's Gospel. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to John chapter 8. We're going to read verses 31 through 38 today. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. We said last week when we gathered that Jesus' relationship with the Jewish religious leaders, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, the members of the Sanhedrin, had been rapidly deteriorating. There have been a whole host of reasons for this, um, but the primary reason was that Jesus simply did not abide by their interpretation of the law. Uh, Jesus had performed miracles on the Sabbath day, and this, of course, had upset them greatly, and they had been seeking his life for some time. In fact, we noted three failed attempts on the part of the Jewish religious leaders to either entrap Jesus or discredit Jesus. Now, the first one was in John chapter 7, where the Sanhedrin sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. And that came to nothing because the temple guards paused before arresting Jesus and listened to what he had to say. And they were so awed by his words that they came back empty-handed. They said to those who had sent them, No one has ever spoken like this man spoke. The second attempt, of course, was this particularly wicked attempt to entrap Jesus by the use of this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And we noted when we looked at that particular event that they weren't really interested in what the woman had done. Otherwise, they would have brought the man who was also her partner. Uh, But they didn't do that. And furthermore, we noted that according to the Jewish law, you had to catch the couple in the act of adultery, which raises the whole question of where they were, that they should catch her in the act of adultery. But we noted that they weren't the least bit interested, really, in the fact that she had done this. They were simply using her as a pawn in their attempt to get at Jesus. And the last and final attempt was an attempt to simply dismiss Jesus. We said that if you don't have the facts, what you often do, if you cannot best somebody at their own game, is that you resort to name-calling and to invective, and that is exactly what they did with Jesus. They began to ask a series of questions, which really weren't questions at all. You know, there are questions like that, questions that are not really inquiries, questions that are really not aimed at getting at the truth. They're questions that are aimed at obfuscation. And that's exactly what these Jewish religious leaders were doing with Jesus. They asked the question, where is your father? Jesus kept talking about his father. And so they asked the question, where is your father? Which we noted last week probably was... um, a rather veiled attempt to insult Jesus because there were strange circumstances surrounding his birth. 
And we know that because later on, they go on to say, we're not the children of any kind of sexual immorality, as if to imply that Jesus was, as if to imply, Joseph's not your father, and we know that. Uh, we're not entirely sure who your father is, uh, but we know it's not Joseph. So there was that question. Then Jesus said, where I am going, you cannot follow. And they raised the question, is he going to kill himself? Why did they raise that question? Because they assumed that they were going to heaven. And if he wasn't going where they were going, then he must have been going to the other place. Uh, Jews believed in the first century that if a person took their own life, they ended, in the darkest, ended up in the darkest regions of Hades. And so that question was raised. And then finally, at the end, they asked the question, who are you? Now, that was, as I said, not really an inquiry. They really weren't interested in knowing Jesus' true identity. It was the kind of question that comes across more like, who are you anyway? Or who do you think you are? So that's the level to which these men were willing to sink, this deteriorating relationship between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, accusations that were not inquiries. Now, Jesus responded to them. He was under no obligation to do so, uh, but he responded to them, and he responded that the very nature of the questions revealed the nature of the questioner. That the very questions they were asking revealed the true spiritual condition of their hearts. And then Jesus went on to say some things that were some of the harshest things, at least from our point of view, that Jesus ever said to people. We often imagine Jesus as sort of meek and mild, Jesus gentle, uh, but we need to understand that Jesus could sometimes be very pointed in his response to people. And that was certainly the case here in John chapter 8, beginning at verse 21. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Well, that's pretty blunt. I'm not sure Dale Carnegie would agree that that's the way to win friends and influence people. But that is exactly what Jesus said. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from below. You think you're going up. I'm telling you, you're going down. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. And unless you believe in me, believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much more to say to you and about you, and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So we said, as we finished up last week, that Jesus is clear. There are two ways to die. And we're all going to die, and we're going to die in one of two ways. We are either going to die in the Lord, which the book of Revelation says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, or we're going to die, as Jesus says to the Jewish leaders here in John chapter 8, you're going to die in your sins. And that will determine your ultimate destiny. Whether you die in the Lord, that is to say in fellowship with Him, in a relationship with Him, or whether you die apart from Him in your sins. But every single one of us, every single person who lives on this earth is going to die in one of those two ways. You could hardly be clearer. Verse 28, so then Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, 
and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 30, and as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So, many did not believe in him, but the good news is that many did believe in him. And Jesus is warning them, and he's warning us in this passage to escape the judgment that is to come, to be sure that we're not going to die in our sins, but rather die in the Lord. Jesus is very clear to the religious leaders, there's no escape from the judgment that is to come. You know, we say this every single Sunday when we say the creed. Now, sometimes we've said the creed for so long that those words sort of just wash over us and we really don't think about it. But one of the things that we profess is that Jesus Christ will come again to judge, to judge the quick and the dead, or as the modern translation says, the living and the dead. And as I pointed out in the sermon last week, even if Jesus does not come back during your lifetime or my lifetime, we're all going to die. And the book of Hebrews said it is appointed man wants to die, and then there is judgment. So sooner or later, we're all going to stand before Jesus Christ, who is the judge of all. Now, when many people think about judgment, that is a terrifying prospect. That's the last thing we want, is to be judged. But we're all going to be judged. But what I want to say to you is that judgment is not always a bad thing. If you're falsely accused and you go into court and the judge finds you innocent, that is a judgment in your favor. That makes the day of judgment a day of vindication rather than a day of condemnation. And that's what Jesus was saying to the people. If you die in the Lord, the day of judgment will be a day of vindication for you because God will look on you and he will not see any guilt. Why? Because your guilt would have been paid for. Your debt would have been paid in full. Your transgressions would have been atoned for by the blood of Jesus. On the other hand, if you die apart from Christ, if you die in your sins, well, then the judgment will be against you. Jesus was saying to the people, make your choice. But here's the important point for you and for me. We're all going to be judged. We're all going to be prosecuted. Nobody escapes the prosecution. Now, we all realize that in this world in which we live, which is an imperfect world, there are times when people do. Criminals do escape prosecution, don't they? For any number of reasons. Sometimes they're never caught. There are a lot of crimes that people commit, and they never get caught in them. We'd like to think that justice will out in the end, but we know that that's oftentimes not the case. Crime is committed, and it goes unsolved. We even have television shows about this. Cold case files. There are other occasions when criminals escape prosecution because they flee justice. That was the case with many of the Nazis at the end of the Second World War. Many of them knew that they were going to be prosecuted, and so they hooked it. They, they got out of there. They went to South America, to Argentina, and places like that to escape prosecution. And there are times when people do escape prosecution by fleeing justice. There are occasions when criminals, this is sad, very frustrating sometimes, but we recognize that sometimes criminals get off 
because of a technicality, a mistrial. Somebody on the jury talks out of turn or talks to the press or whatever it is, and the result is that somebody gets off on a technicality. A mistrial is declared. But Jesus is making it very clear, and we need to understand this. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, this is rather frightening. Does he intend to frighten us? Yes, he does. Not me, but Jesus intends to frighten us a little bit. Because the prospect of dying apart from him is frightening. And what he wants us to understand is that nobody's going to escape prosecution on the basis of never being caught why? Because God is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. We say that every Sunday at the beginning of the service. Now, if you're in the Lord, that's good news. If you're in your sins, that's terrifying news to know that maybe nobody else sees what you're doing, but God sees what you're doing. Now, why is it good news if you're in the Lord? Because every single one of us has a longing, a longing to be fully known with all of our faults, all of our blemishes, and to be fully loved in spite of it. Let's just go ahead in a minute. Most of us wear a mask on a day-to-day -day basis. Not most of us. We all wear a mask every single day. There are things that nobody knows about us, even our spouse does not know about us, those secret thoughts or dreams or whatever it is that nobody knows. And the only reason we don't tell those things is because we're afraid if anybody really knew them, they would think less of us. If somebody really knew what really goes through my mind or what I think, they would not love me. Ah, but you see, the Lord does. He knows every impure thought, every evil, wicked desire, and He loves you in spite of it. So that call it for purity is not such a bad thing, depending upon where you stand. But this much is clear. None of us is going to escape prosecution because He does see it all. None of us is going to be able to flee his justice because he is the judge of all the earth and he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Where can we flee? That's the question the psalmist asks. If I go down into Hades, you are there. If I climb up into the heavens, you are there. There is no escaping from the Lord. Jonah thought that he could do that. Jonah thought that he could flee the Lord and he went down, 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 down into the depths and he could not flee God's justice, and neither can we. And we must not think that we're going to get off on a technicality, <laughs> that God grades on the curve. That's not the way it is. God is perfect justice. That's what's so powerful about the cross. It is there on the cross where God's mercy and his justice meets. Some people ask the question, well, why, couldn't, why did God have to send his son to die? I mean, that was terrible. The death of the cross, the most excruciating, humiliating form of death imaginable. Why couldn't God just do what we do? And that is, you know, just forget about it. Look the other way. Well, God can't do that because it's contrary to his nature. God 
is and must be just. And God is and must be merciful. And how do you reconcile those two things when you're dealing with <laughs> sinful human beings? He loves them, and yet their sin deserves punishment. How does he deal with it? He sends Jesus Christ to come down and die upon the cross so that he himself, as God, pays the price for our sin. And he suffers the curse of the damned that you and I might go free. God's justice and God's mercy meet there on Calvary. But nobody escapes God's justice. And that's why Jesus goes on in verses 28 and 29 to talk about his death. That's why, having said all of these things, you don't want to die in your sins. You want to die in the Lord. You want to die in fellowship with me. That is why Jesus talks to the disciples and talks to the Jewish religious leaders in a very pointed way. But then he does something very interesting. He makes a beeline to the cross. He makes a beeline to the cross. Verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father has sent me. That expression, lifted up, is a reference to Jesus' death. John uses that phrase three times in his gospel. The first time that he uses it is in John chapter 3. And if you want to understand the meaning of it, you have to compare all of these passages. Uh, this is um, a very important thing when it comes to biblical interpretation, what scholars call exegesis. Scripture always interprets Scripture. In other words, you don't take a passage out of its context. Because if you lift a passage out of its context, you can really make the Bible say anything you want it to say. So, one of the principles of sound exegesis or interpretation is that Scripture always interprets Scripture. So, if you come across a passage like this, being lifted up, Christ being lifted up, and it's not just in one place but in multiple places, you have to compare those passages side by side to get the full meaning of the text. So, the first time that this is mentioned is in John chapter Three. This is in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus comes under the cover of night, and he asks Jesus, you know, what does a man have to do to be saved? Basically, what he says to Jesus is, we know that you're a man who's come from God because no one could do the things that you were doing unless God were with him. But Jesus knew he was coming because he wanted to know. He had questions in his heart. He was, he was concerned. He was troubled in his spirit. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus didn't have a clue as to what Jesus meant by that. How can a man be born when he is old? Does he have to go back into his mother's womb? I don't understand what you're talking about. And Jesus said, what do you mean you don't want to understand what I'm talking about? You're Israel's teacher. You're supposed to be the theologian. You're supposed to understand these things. And Jesus goes on to say this, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting Life. Now, if you remember when we were back in John chapter 3, you remember that Jesus is referring to a story that took place. It's recorded in the book of Numbers. It took place during the Jews traveling, the Hebrews, in the wilderness. 
They had been led out of their captivity in Egypt, and for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness, in the desert. And there came a point where the people were really complaining. They were being rebellious, they were being stiff-necked, and we're told that God allowed some discipline to come into their lives, one of the most terrifying forms of discipline I can even imagine, and that is God allowed a brood of venomous snakes to come into the camp. And the people were bitten by these snakes and they were dying. And it looked as though they were going to be wiped out. And those kinds of snakes do exist in that part of the world. I hate snakes. I just hate snakes. There's just something unnatural about anything without legs. And so, <laughs> terrifying. And these snakes were biting these people and they were dying. And Moses was fearful that the whole camp would be wiped out. And so he went to the Lord and he said, you've got to do something. You've got to save your people. You, you led them out of captivity. You want them to perish out here in the wilderness? And the Lord said, all right, I'll give them an antidote. And what he said is, I want you to make a bronze serpent and I want you to put it on a pole and I want you to put it in the center of the camp. And whoever looks to the serpent on the pole will be delivered. And Moses this is the Miller Amplified version, but the, the, Moses turns and he says, you know, well, well, what else do I have to do? Nothing else. Just the bronze serpent on a pole in the middle of the camp. That's all you need to do. And whoever trusts in my appointed means of salvation, God says, will be saved. Well, in John 3, when Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, what he was saying is, he's the appointed means of salvation. And how was he lifted up? He was lifted up upon a cross to die. So it's a reference to the manner of Jesus' death. Here in John chapter 8, he says that same thing, when the Son of Man is lifted up. But in this particular instance, he's not just referring to his death. He is referring to that, of course. But he's saying not only will men be saved, those who look to him, but he says, when he is lifted up, then you will know that I am he. In other words, the manner of Jesus' death shows his love for the world and it also reveals his true identity. You want to know what God is like? People often say, well, you know, what is God like? If you want to know what God is like, and there are all kinds of mischaracterizations of God. Many people think that God is sort of this stern judge who sits up there on his throne with a basket full of lightning bolts just waiting for somebody to mess up. Or God is this sort of disinterested clockmaker who created the world and sort of wound it up and set it in motion, but then he sits back and he has no interest whatsoever in the affairs of men and women. What is God like? Is he like that? If you want to know what God is like, we're told, look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ dying on the cross, and that is where you will see God for who he really is. But there on the cross, everybody will see him. We have a wonderful hymn that I wanted to use so bad last week, but I exercised some self-control so that we could sing it during Advent. 
It's a great Charles Wesley hymn, and it's entitled, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. It's really hard to beat Charles Wesley. But it has this wonderful stanza at the beginning, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. This is Christ coming back. Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending, once for our salvation slain, thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of His train. Second stanza, Every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty. And here's the part that's important. Those who set at naught and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Well, that's critical. Because when he comes back, they're going to see him crucified. He is glorified now, but when he comes back, he will still bear the wounds, and they will see those wounds. They will see the one whom they have pierced. And you say, well, that's them. That's not us. Walter Russell Bowie, who was a professor at Virginia Theological Seminary, my old alma mater, had another great hymn. Lord Christ, when first thou camest to earth, upon a cross they bound thee, and mocked thy saving kingship then with thorns with which they crowned thee. And still our wrongs do weave thee now new thorns to pierce thy steady brow, and robe of sorrow place round thee. Every time you and I sin, we crucify Christ all over again. And when he comes back, we will see him who was crucified for who he really is. Those who die in their sins will see him deeply wailing, deeply wailing. But what about those who die in the Lord, who see him lifted up and look to him for their salvation? Well, there's more to it. Those dear tokens of his passion, still his dazzling body bears, cause of endless exaltation, to his ransomed worshipers. With what rapture, with what rapture gaze we on those glorious scars. So Jesus being lifted up will reveal who he really is. Every knee will bow one day, ladies and gentlemen. Every knee. Some will bow because he is the Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth. They may have denied him in this life, but they won't be able to deny him anymore. Others will bow because he is their Lord. And with rapture, they gaze on his glorious scars. The final reference to Jesus being lifted up is found in John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, just turn there if you will, Jesus speaks of drawing men to himself. John chapter 12. Jesus says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You know, the love of Christ exhibited on the cross is a great attraction. You know who I think the luckiest man in the world was? 
This is a bit of a trick question. Who do you think the luckiest man who ever lived was? Ah, uh, you've been in my class before where I've done this, so absolutely. I've always said that I think the luckiest man who ever lived was the thief on the cross. There were two thieves that were crucified next to Jesus. You'll recall that one of them railed against Jesus, cursed him, and said, if you're the Messiah, come down, save us, save yourself. And the other one, watching the way that Jesus died, watching the compassion that he had, how he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, how he prayed and forgave those who were torturing him and murdering him. We're told that one of the thieves said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now you think about it. Why is that man the luckiest man that ever lived? Because of all the crosses and Hundreds of thousands of people were crucified during the Roman era. It was the worst form of capital punishment. Of all the crosses, on all the days, in all the Roman Empire, that man was crucified next to the Lord of glory. And as he watched Jesus there lifted up for all the world to see, he was drawn to the Lord. Drawn to his love, to his compassion, for his sacrifice. And that man, that day, entered paradise. That can happen today. Jesus Christ is still the great attraction. And he's the great attraction, why? Because he meets our most fundamental need, that is to be saved. We all know we need to be saved. There's not a person in this room who's not experienced guilt and its corresponding twin, shame. And those are tremendous burdens to carry. I cannot tell you how many people, and I've been with a lot of people on their deathbed, I cannot tell you how many people I have been with who at the very final moment wonder, was it enough? I can promise you this, you don't want to get to that point where at the last moment you're wondering, was it enough? Was I good enough? Was I kind enough? Did I do enough? Did I love enough? You don't want to get to that point because at that point, it's too late. But you can know. You can know absolutely that that one who was offered on the tree was offered for you. And your guilt and your shame can be purged away for now and for all eternity. Jesus' death meets our most fundamental need. That's why we're attracted to him. You understand that there's no other religion in the world that offers atonement for sins. In every other religion, it's works righteousness. You've got to do it yourself. And when you get to the end, you will never, ever, ever know whether it was enough. Until you, as the old poem says, cross the bar. And so you can approach death with trembling and with fear and anxiety, wondering, 
But with Jesus Christ, if you die in him, you never have to worry. You never have to wonder. You can go confidently. You don't have to rail against the dying of the light. You can rejoice because you know exactly where you're going. Jesus' death reveals his great love. That's what John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Paul in Romans chapter 5 says, And God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we got our act together, not when we cleaned ourselves up, not when we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but even when we had not, God loved us to be fully known and to be fully loved. Jesus' death can be for you the message of salvation or it can be for you the message of condemnation, but it's going to be one of those two, Jesus says. Which will it be? The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said that to some, and he was talking about ministers of the gospel, he said, to some we are the fragrance of life. To some we are the fragrance of death. Come to Jesus Christ today. Look with rapture upon his glorious scars. Know that he was pierced for you and for your transgressions. And you can be confident that when you stand before him, you will not hear, depart from me, I never knew you, but welcome son and daughter. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his love for us, for his mercy, for his grace. Help us to see ourselves for what we really are and to see him for who he really is. Take away the veil that covers our eyes and our minds and our hearts, that veil that kept the Jewish religious leaders from seeing him for who he really is. But grant us the grace to see him crucified, dying for us men and for our salvation. Grant that we may gaze on those glorious scars. And God forbid that we should glory in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.